So there's definitely going to be some kind of verdict、um, served to TikTok, whether it's in a form of ban, a, a forced divestiture, or a forced sale, or simply making just things much harder for TikTok to operate in the U.S. Still, I think to investors, they expect Alibaba to be a growth company, but I think Alibaba is at a mature stage, which will be analyzed very differently and judged differently by investors. Uh, and by its own employees to try to understand its kind of way forward. We've been talking about TikTok, and and we think about all the like the recent kind of winners or or companies that are winning in the U.S. market, right? Shein, Timu, and all these companies. Like, but we cannot overlook how long a lot of these OG Chinese companies have already been in the U.S. Baidu opened its first R&D center in the U.S. in 2011. Alibaba's B2B commerce business first launched in 2019, and same with DJI, Tencent, and the rest of the crew. They they've all been. In the U.S. for much longer than I think we remember. For Chinese companies, just in the U.S., for them to first understand that the U.S. media way is very, very different from how China does PR. You know, in terms of the relationship building, the nurturing process, it's very different from China's media relations strategy. Welcome to the Ginger River Radio podcast, a part of the GRR Media Outlet, and your go-to podcast for anything about Chinese current events. I'm your host Jiang Jiang, the founder of Ginger River Review, a newsletter that focuses on reporting the priorities of both the leadership and the general public in China, and views you do not normally see from mainstream English language media. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, go to www.gingerriver.com. And sign up to join our community of avid China watchers. Now let's dive into our podcast show today. In this episode, we'll be focusing on two companies that have been at the forefront of recent discussions among China watchers: TikTok and Alibaba. Just a few weeks ago, millions of people worldwide watched TikTok CEO Shou Chu face tough questions from U.S. Congress members during a hearing at the U.S. Capitol. The session was convened to explore concerns over whether the Chinese government and employees of TikTok's parent company ByteDance could potentially exploit the app for surveillance or to promote content favorable to Chinese interests. How can you promise that、uh, that that will move into、uh, into the United States of America and be protected here?、Uh, Congressman, I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us. We have not provided. Well, you know what? I've I asked that, that. I find that actually preposterous. I, I have I,、uh, I, looked I, in. I, I have、really、seen、don't. no evidence of this happening.、Mm. And in order to assure everybody here and all our users, our commitment is to move the data in into the United States to be stored on American soil by an American company, overseen by American personnel. So the risk will be similar to any government going to an American company asking for data. On March 28th, China's technology giant Alibaba made headlines with its founder Jack Ma's return to China and announcement of a major restructuring, splitting its business into six primary units—a landmark move in the company's 24-year history. These six divisions will focus on cloud intelligence, Taobao Tmall Commerce, local services, Cainiao Smart Logistics, global digital commerce, and digital media and entertainment. 
Join me to talk about the recent news on these two companies today is Ivy Young. She has worked in strategic communications and in corporate comms for more than a decade, including two years at Alibaba Group. She now writes an opt column called Discourse Power or Hua Yuquan Shidai for FT China and has written for the China Project. She follows topics from TikTok to cross-border e-commerce to the effects of the Chips Act and much more. Ivy was born in Wuhan and grew up in Los Angeles. She graduated from New York University and Columbia Business School and now lives and works in New York. Hi Ivy, welcome to Jinder River Radio. Hi, Zhang Zhang. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you. You know, I think your extensive experience in both China and the U.S. and your deep knowledge of the industry just makes you an ideal guest for our episode today. And uh, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on these topics. Let's talk about TikTok first. You know, there is no lack of stories in both the U.S. and China about the TikTok hearing, including a Wall Street Journal article titled Why Chinese Apps Are the Favorites of Young Americans, in which you provided valuable insights. Uh, based on your observations, Ivy, how has the TikTok news been received by the public in both China and the U.S., particularly among the young American TikTok users? Yeah, there really has been um, a flurry of stories in both countries, like you said. Um, but what I found really surprising is really the intense interest in China for an app that most users can't even use in China because TikTok is um, you can't use it in China. Um, from the land-to-land -land translations of exchanges between the CEO and the lawmakers to really like all the deep dive on all the potential repercussions for TikTok in terms of a ban or a divestiture, um, I really like. It's really interesting to me that like China has really taken such an interest in this, um, and I think the underlying reasons for why TikTok is faced with all these challenges in the U.S. is another thing that Chinese audience. It's also kind of, you know, having building their own kind of theories upon. And what I thought was really kind of important to know is also like for on the Chinese side, um, the level of sophistication about the issue. It's like it's surprising and not surprising at the same time, given kind of the intense um, interest that China has about kind of all things that's happening in the U.S. Um, but the takeaway, I think, for the Chinese audience um, from the hearing is really the absurdities and the grandstanding that is really an inevitable part of like the democratic process, which involves these hearings, but also kind of like there's a lot of kind of chit chat on um, on the Chinese internet about the level of the just pure ignorance, right, about the state of technology that these lawmakers have um, shown to really the world that they really understood very little and it's really about kind of attacking TikTok from um, their perspectives. So to kind of for them to properly regulate it um, and for them to kind of to even understand the issues at hand, I think for the Chinese audience that was, you know, eye-opening. Um, in the U.S., I would say that there is a divergence between kind of what the public sphere what I would call like the mainstream media that's reporting about what the hearing really meant. There is kind of the, you know, the, the use of the word like grilling, right, of the TikTok CEO. And a lot of uh, media reporting also focused on the questions that Shochu couldn't give satisfactory answers to. And really, even after the hearing, right, a lot of concerns still remain. Basically, the 
I guess the the real issue is that TikTok is owned by a company that is based in Beijing, and it's really really hard to argue that TikTok is completely independent. And even when Shouchu really tried to explain that、um, during the hearing that、um, you know they they are completely separate, that they are American company, it's very hard for him to guarantee that the Chinese government won't. Like what they decide to do with ByteDance, really, it's something that he cannot guarantee, given that he is the CEO of、um, TikTok. And、um, but I think, like overall, the goal of the hearing was not to answer all of the questions or even make promises. It's about stalling. It's about not appear confrontational, and to be collaborative. And in that sense, I think、um, the goal was achieved. And I think the reach goal was if the internet falls in love with Shouchu, which is totally is the case. I think on both sides of the aisle,、um, I think that is kind of like for TikTok. That's kind of the cherry on top. So that's kind of,、um, at least from my perspective, kind of what the U.S. and the China kind of media landscape, kind of how their their kind of reaction to the hearing. Yeah, you know,、uh, I also observed that actually、uh, interesting is that many. Chinese people、uh, watch the congressional, at least the highlights of the, the the congressional hearing from the Chinese versions of TikTok, the Douyin apps. And、uh, I noticed that you also have written、uh, for the China Project about TikTok and、uh, its many challenges in the U.S. after the congressional hearing, and specifically on how much work TikTok has put in order to be perceived as being American enough. Now TikTok faces an uncertain future as it tries to calibrate between Chinese and American interests. You suggested at the end of the article that it is hard for TikTok to maintain allegiance to both of Chinese and American interests simultaneously. So, in your opinion,、uh, what are the key factors for TikTok in addressing the current dilemma? We know that at the beginning of the hearing, actually, showed to、uh, address the four. Commitments to address the concerns of the American Congress members and the public. So, what do you think about the key factors for TikTok now in addressing the, this current dilemma?、Um, I think TikTok is really just stuck in between a rock and a hard place,、um, and it, the issues are really beyond TikTok. It's it's really about the U.S.-China and how it's really in the midst of all the geopolitical tensions that. That kind of TikTok is becomes its poster child for for that tension, and I think the rhetoric and discussions about the national security, privacy, data security, they're issues way bigger than TikTok. And but at the same time, right? TikTok also the way that it handles the discussion carries a lot of weight and represents not just TikTok, the subsidiary of ByteDance, but also. The intent and the attitude of its parent company. I think that will always be analyzed、um, together. And no matter how hard TikTok tries to separate itself from ByteDance, I think、um, at least in the West, that is something that it's just not going to be the case.、Um, and also, like TikTok is part of that trend with all these other Chinese companies who are looking to expand into overseas market in the U.S. and in Europe, and. You know, it is that poster child of Chinese tech in increasingly globalizing, but at the same time, kind of deglobalizing world. So I, I, I don't think there's really the right answer for how TikTok can address the current dilemma. It's, it's just kind of have to 
go with the flow with how how it's currently handling right it's it is doing a lot of lobbying right now in DC and it's um it is trying to kind of showcase a more proactive stance right to to show that the lawmakers that we are doing a lot whether it's the Texas um the Texas um, plan or it's all of the other things that it's trying to do they're really trying to prove that they are making an effort but at the same time i think their their china kind of dna it's very very hard to um separate self from yeah uh you you mentioned about the Texas project which is also another i believe an effort that uh, Shoju trying to make sure that the american people can accept that because he said that the data is saved in america and is being monitored by americans and uh, but it is still hard i saw lots of people you know express their ideas about how tiktok should act in the next step and uh, i came across a thought provoking tweet by by Nathan Mabubi, a research scholar at the Center for the Study of Contemporary China at the University of Pennsylvania, he proposed a four-step strategy for TikTok. Number one is stop fighting US ban, let it happen. The second one is strictly adhere to world-leading data security practices. And uh, the third is regularly point out how the US social media companies fell well short of the same situation. And the last one is to build up Uh, TikTok's presence in the rest of the world to make Americans feel formal. I'm not sure that is like the the plan that TikTok will accept, but it seems a, a very realistic suggestion. So, what what are your thoughts on the eventual outcome of TikTok's situation? Some say it is unlikely that TikTok is going to be banned because Meta, Google, and other big tech companies also have similar issues. And the congressional hearing, as you just mentioned, sometimes it's just more about put pressure on TikTok to make it make a concession in the negotiation in the future. I think that is the million-dollar question, and I think what, how you framed it is exactly the case. It's it's nobody knows what the ban will look like. I think on I think there are a lot more uh, a lot of people have opined、um, about kind of the the legality of of the ban. Right, as, and the lawyers definitely are more.、Um, they have, they have more. Like they're more invested in the issue than I can attempt to explain. But at the same time, I think it's it's all looking like it's kind of setting the stage, right, for some kind of negotiation that has to happen. It's there, there, there's the pressure、um, from the Biden administration, whether it's the Restrict Act or the Data Act, to try to kind of almost showcase what it. Could look like when they are going to kind of apply pressure to not just like TikTok, but for all Chinese tech companies.、Um, but at the same time, like they they're also trying to figure out like how to do it so that they don't run into the same issues that the Trump administration did, which was kind of a very sudden like attack. And now they're kind of setting the stage, and I think it is. To gain more of a negotiation advantage、um, into how how to deal with the TikTok issue, but I I don't think a ban is very realistic. But at the same time, I think right now anything could happen. But I think for for the Biden administration also, it's TikTok is becoming this kind of political imperative. It's kind of what the Chinese call 势在必得 right? They they really want to figure、mm-hmm. out a way for them. To manage this, to show that at least show 
some a segment of the voter that they're doing something about it. So there's definitely going to be some kind of verdict、um, served to TikTok, wh- whether it's in a form of ban, a, dev- a forced divestiture, or a forced sale, or simply making just things much harder for TikTok to operate in the U.S. I think those are kind of the different、um, kind of degrees of options that I think can all happen to TikTok at you know in the near future. Yeah. So、uh, do, do you think?、Uh... Other than a complete ban, maybe a compulsory sale, a forced sale, or maybe a transfer of technology is more possible than than being banned in the U.S. for TikTok. I think the latter two options are more possible than a ban because when there is a ban, I I don't think there's like nobody benefits from it, and I think one of the arguments that TikTok has been making. Um, through its kind of you know, its kind of media relations and a lot of in a lot of its kind of lobbying talk points is that it's TikTok is generating a lot of job like job opportunity. There is kind of, it is a content creation platform that is creating a lot of different、um, options for creators. So I think from from that point of view. Um, I think it's going to be really really hard to just completely ban the app. Um, and also, just like interestingly, when we were talking about kind of the differences between how the traditional media and、um, China is like looking at the hearing and the issue of TikTok, I think there's also kind of like the third、um, media outlet, which is like actually on TikTok. I actually spent a lot of time after the hearing on TikTok, and there is no shortage of like just the millennial and the Gen Z creators, TikTokers, or just Users just completely like not okay with the the potential that take, the app is banned,、um, and how like the kind of memes that kind of kind of have blossomed since that. I it's it's very difficult for me to like to believe that that's all kind of TikTok's teams or TikTok's kind of creators、um, doing all of that. I think there's also that that's also a reflection of you know a seg a segment of like. The much younger demographic, which is also、um, a voter demographic, um, that both sides are trying to win over, and I think if they do decide to ban TikTok, I don't think that's a great look for the Gen Zs who are of voting age. Yeah, actually, I was gonna to ask you if if you think that maybe a short term effects of the congressional hearing might be like losing lots of users, but actually, I believe according to what you have just. Said and observed, it is not likely, right? The next generation, I mean, the seems are going to stick to using this app because it's just really convenient and yeah, I think so.、Right? And I feel like、uh, there's there's gotta be a reason why a lot of these people are on TikTok versus like Reels or YouTube or all the other mediums.、Um, I think there's there's something about it. I I'm not an avid enough user on TikTok to fully understand. Um, the platform and like it's like the whole culture of it, but I've begun I, I've begun using it enough to kind of understand the 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 anger. <laughs> but it's it's super fascinating to me. I guess it's because like you and I are, but they, they keep on trying to convince us that they're like all their users are not just Gen Zs. But I I feel like it's definitely not my choice of social media app that I 
that I constantly use and really um, addicted to compared to some of the other apps. But, um, but I don't know, maybe we are still like outside of their age range for the app. I don't know. Do you use do you use TikTok a lot? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I I use, but not that that often. I use, I mean, the Chinese version of TikTok, Douyin, like a lot because there's just lots of interesting things on that. I think the the logic, I mean, the uh, we say the 底层逻辑 of these two apps are, this, uh, are almost the same, right? It just keeps feeding you the things that you like to watch. Uh, yeah, but I, I believe TikTok. Uh, in terms of the, as you just mentioned, the the core users of it, maybe we are not. They are like the most targeted ones. Yeah. I don't think we are, but I think Douyin also. I think like, at least anecdotally, I feel like a lot of like my family members, like in in China, they would use Douyin versus like, I I don't feel like you know people in their forties plus forty two kind of sixty age. Um, Kind of segment would use TikTok. I don't like. That's just that's something I've always wondered. But I'm sure they have a lot of stats proving me wrong on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my mom, she, I think she preferred to use Kuaishou rather than Douyin. So maybe there is a there do has a you know a, a, a generation you know focused in terms of the different apps. And uh, I think another interesting that uh, you know because. Uh, now more and more enterprises are paying more attention on uh, entering into the U.S. market. You also touched a little bit on that uh, just now. And so, so do you think that uh, this current situation with TikTok in the U.S. will have a negative impact on the technology industry as well as the openness of the market in the U.S. as a whole? Or it will only impact Chinese companies or Chinese uh, all companies whose parent company is a Chinese company that either plans to enter the U.S. market or is already operating there? I think that's a huge if. And I think the whole designation of like what is a Chinese company, what makes a Chinese company like a U.S. company, I think that is, I think these are very, um, these are very fluid concepts now. Like I'm sh- there's, there's the legal way of defining if you're like, for example, TikTok is it's based in the U.S., but also in Singapore, right? But we still think of it as a Chinese company because of its because it is a subsidiary of ByteDance. And you also, I I keep on thinking about like um, TSMC, right? TSMC is really kind of building its presence in the U.S. in Arizona um, to to start and. But when you think about TSMC, like they're, a lot of their talent is from, you know, they, they, they are from Taiwan. Um, a lot of their equipment is from, mm-hmm. you know, Europe. And they, their know-how is kind of, you know, in the U.S. and in Taiwan and globally. They have talent that kind of contribute to that process from all over the world. But because it's like, but in the case of like TSMC, because it is based in Arizona, it makes it a... Uh, I guess an American entity versus TikTok. It is an American entity, which but we still kind of relate it back to um, its Beijing-based entity. So I I I don't know. I think this this question is is a huge question, but I just think that from my perspective, and I think about this a lot from the perspective of like communicating and um, corporate affairs, and from how how do you how do you adapt to the local market that you're in 
And I think that is, that is something that is in constant motion. And I think we had to think it beyond just the physical location and think about more like its DNA and how it, how it wants to be kind of perceived as American or as Chinese or none of it. I just think that the idea of a global company in this day and age has to evolve. And I think it hasn't fully um, gone through the process yet. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I hope they can figure out a way to get it work uh, because many enterprises are watching and uh, it's a great app. Uh, and uh, speaking of enterprises, uh, let's now switch to Alibaba. The same question I would like to ask first is how has the Alibaba's breakup plan been received by the public in both China and the U.S., uh, according to your observation? I actually think you might be more... Um, you probably are watching this from kind of both that side uh, a lot more than I am. Because I think from my perspective, there are the investors, right, um, opinion. And I think it's great. Everybody's super happy because, like, the sum of its parts sometimes just means that it's a lot more complicated and it's for, for the investors, it's a lot harder to, to analyze. So now that they're kind of in its own kind of businesses, like, it's much more clear to see what are the, like, transfer prices of kind of, like, the internal management what are some of the challenges and who is actually subsidizing whom? Because in, in the old system where it's kind of like the group and then the subsidiaries, it's very hard to, to fully see that and to analyze that. So I think for, at least for the investor um, in the U.S., at least, I think they're really happy and all the shareholders are really happy. But in China, I think, I honestly, I haven't seen a lot of negative um, pieces about it. Have you? I, I, I don't think I see any like March negative comments on that. And uh, I actually, I feel that uh, it's more about like uh, enterprise strategic like uh, uh, plans that may, maybe the, the, the public don't care that much. And uh, Daniel Zhang, he, he mentioned that he hoped the, the whole group or the new uh, the, the units could be more agile, reactive to the current, you know, the market situations. So uh, it will benefit them. I, at least Alibaba Group believe that it will benefit each of the groups so they can, uh, you know, react more quickly to the things happening in the market. But uh, of course, in the short term, maybe they have to, um, they need some time to, to adapt to that situation. So I think it's more about how the other enterprises, especially the competitors of Alibaba, see these changes. And uh, uh, according to the latest plan, Alibaba will ensure that these six independent business groups, they can be responsible for their own profit and loss. And each business group will form its own board of directors, implementing a CEO responsibility system under the leadership of the respective boards. And under this model, Alibaba will act as a holding company, managing each business group while allowing individual business groups the opportunity to go public independently. I guess that is also part of the reason that uh, you mentioned about some investors are, are happy to see it, about this. Uh, so uh, uh, besides the e-commerce segment, because we know the domestic e-commerce business of Alibaba Group actually accounted for about two-thirds of, of the group's revenue. 
Uh, besides that, who will be the winners and losers, and what could be the potential outcomes of some of the BUs, in your opinion? I I personally think that the the domestic e-commerce business will continue to do really really well, just because now that it doesn't have to subsidize all of the losing kind of like BUs. It probably has a much better chance of focusing its efforts just doing what it does best. So I think that will kind of refocus, like you you were saying, like refocus the effort and become more agile. And it is also an intensely competitive、um, segment, right? In China, there's like JD and Pinduoduo, and I think they are definitely in need of some kind of. Not a full pivot, but definitely to kind of refocus their efforts so that they could really kind of run the business without having to fully fulfill kind of group level strategy.、Um, but I think the biggest loser probably are the BUs that do require a lot of investment, and it's a lot of kind of zero sum com- competition in China. The one that comes to mind is kind of local services, right? There's, I think there's. That is the BU that has been bleeding a lot of money,、um, and they are also the kind of business because the switching costs. I mean, we both lived in China. We know that like to for for consumers at least like to to get delivery from one platform versus the other. It's the switching cost is so low that there's really very little kind of customer stickiness. So it requires the business kind of really continuously. Um, investing in acquiring customers and just ensuring that there is that scale for the business to make sense. But I think it will be really interesting to see how local services will operate in the near future, at, like especially in the next, I guess, quarter、um, after this change. Because without the kind of subsidies, how how will it kind of fully survive and thrive the way that I'm sure the business will want to, but Um, there's also a lot of competition, like like Meituan, for example, and they compared to like Alibaba, Meituan, similarly, right? Like the co- e-commerce,、um, e-commerce, and even like international e-commerce, like Meituan, it's like really focused on this local services model versus like to Alibaba, this is this is like a big part of it, but it's also not everything. So like that laser focus on the business itself. I think that is intent of this whole restructuring, but whether it will survive long enough for this, like for it to take effect, I I'm a little skeptical.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, what are the new opportunities and challenges for Alibaba Group after the restructuring?、Uh, I have heard some of my friends who are former employees say that Alibaba actually,、um, well, some say it has developed a big company syndrome, which is not unusual, but. Uh, will the restructuring help that and may lead to a new era of Alibaba? I think the whole purpose of this it is to cure the big company syndrome, right? I think that is a huge, huge part of it. And theoretically, like this whole attempt, like we talk, we we were just literally speaking about kind of refocusing and giving the power back to the businesses, and it can lead to better planning. And you know, they don't, they they could do better capital allocation because they don't have to support money losing ones. They could. Redirect and really build according to their own needs,、um, but I think like it's it's going to be difficult even on an individual BU 
level if the whole da gong si bing, which I think a lot of people have written about,、um, it's kind of it's not even the growing pains anymore. It's at a, like Alibaba. It's at a scale large enough that it still I think to investors they expect Alibaba to be a growth company. But I think Alibaba is at a mature stage, which will be analyzed very differently and judged differently by investors. Uh, and by its own employees to try to understand its kind of way forward. So I, I think Da Gong Si Bing is a huge part of it. So I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, I, I think the big company syndrome is like a common issue that lots of you know big companies have to face and、uh, want to figure out a way to to solve.、Uh, and you mentioned about Meituan. Do you expect you know any other internet companies like Tencent? To spill up like Alibaba,、uh, will Alibaba's competitors, including JD.com and Jingdong and Pinduoduo, to take advantage of the opportunity to expand market share through the restructuring? Or maybe it's not a opportunity for them, because maybe they are going to face an even stronger Alibaba, because each of the six divisions may have the flexibility and freedom to de- develop their own growth strategies. As you said, that they are going to be more focused, and maybe they can, you know, have more customized、uh, strategy against their competitors. I think they all have different challenges, but it's a really interesting question because I think for Alibaba, the split it's really significant because I think for the past I would say five years, like Alibaba has been really focused on integration and facilitating coordination and like really kind of. Centralizing kind of the power, right, and really kind of all aggregating that into the group. Versus, I don't think any of Alibaba's competitor has been this intentional about doing that.、Um, for example, Alibaba has been talking about the Zhongtai Zhanlue, the mid-platform strategy, for a really long time, and that was kind of Daniel Zhang's like big kind of plan and strategy. And it's really all about kind of how to mobilize internal capabilities and rally the troops, and how to incentivize all the BUs to help one another. At least, kind of on the surface, I think that was the intention of the Zhongtai Zhanlue.、Um, but it's really like it's the idea that everything is in support of the group. It's very, very idealistic, and I think it disregards. Corporate behavior and assumes that like employees will just march to the same beat of the drum, and really just being okay having their fate decided for them with very little discretion,、um, and consideration for their career trajectory. Because I think Zhongtai, it's all about being very very coordinated and having all of the small pieces in in service of kind of the bigger grander goal. I think this is also.、Um, Kind of significant in that it's it points to in in my own opinion, 大公司病 right like big company syndrome that you think that you could use this kind of strategy to to manage behavior.、Um, so I I don't know whether or not like all the other companies will follow through, but I do believe that this is a watershed moment, and have no doubt that all of the technology companies are watching it to see exactly what Alibaba's Plan and how they like how it is executed. I think that will determine whether or not they do something similar or know that this this is not the way to go.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, 
uh, how will Alibaba's restructuring affect its overseas strategy and development? And will what TikTok experience in the U.S. affect Alibaba's overseas strategic layout? Um, I think one thing that like we we've been talking about TikTok and um, and we think about all the like the recent kind of winners or or companies that are winning in the U.S. market, right? Xi'an, Timu, and all these companies. Like, but we cannot overlook how long. A lot of these OG Chinese companies have already been in the U.S. Um, so some stats, right? Baidu opened its first R&D center in the U.S. in 2011. Alibaba's B2B commerce business first launched in 2019. And same with DJI, Tencent, and the rest of the crew. They've, they've all been in the U.S. for much longer than I think we remember. AliExpress, for example, like has been in the U.S. for more than a decade. And I think with the whole kind of revamp that um, the consolidating of the international commerce business under Jiang Fan, um, when he took the helm um, in 2022, I think like the overseas business has become more strategically important. And that hasn't really been the case um, because Alibaba's core commerce was just so successful that like for the overseas business, it's kind of like it's it's great to have, but it's also in some ways an afterthought. Um, and also like Alibaba, I think it's also been one of the first um, and the earliest, right, trumpeting globalization. Um, and it, 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 when it IPO'd in the U.S. and it's been really loud and um, kind of strong in kind of um, talking about globalization and really want to do um, more in that space. And I've kind of written about that idea too in one of my FT pieces. The whole idea that like Alibaba, it's it is a it's a mature company now, as we were just talking about a moment ago. And given all the signals and organizational strategies, and even some of the challenges it's been facing, it is at a mature stage. And right now, for Alibaba, how it like transitions from a growth company to a mature company at least in the eyes of investors, I think that requires a lot of recalibration and that will also take a lot of convincing because I think this is, and I think this is exactly what they're trying to do to kind of refocus um, on the priorities and costs and cut redundancies and starting to make choices that will ensure that it will continue to be, its growth will continue to be sustainable. So I think this, overseas market share and I think the um, in the recent earning calls they've they've tried to really emphasize that it is increasingly important it's a huge part of the puzzle but it's also definitely a work in progress in the recent earnings report core e-commerce Alibaba's cash cow like you said earlier was two-thirds of the business the international commerce is merely eight percent of revenue it's clear what the priority is given revenue contribution. As core commerce growth slows down, and it really has been, international commerce has become much more important. But it will be really interesting to see after this whole restructuring how it's going to play out. Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting that you mentioned actually lots of Chinese companies. They have existed in the U.S. like years ago, then that which might be ignored by by some people, and uh, what suggestions do you have for the Chinese companies to expand overseas, especially in the Western markets in the future? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is 
like I guess for larger Chinese tech companies or even smaller consumer brands, hardware or other Chinese businesses, is that they have to accept that there is a huge learning curve to adapt to the norms and rules of the country. And I think having respect, um, 敬畏之心, I think in, in early stages is really, really important. I think in the U.S. I've observed that um, companies really take a page, right, when they're launching in the U.S., um, like how they're operating in China, they, they try to replicate some of that here. And sometimes that is the, the secret sauce that kind of gives them an advantage over their U.S. competitors. Um, but a lot of times this involves like, you know, fly this special forces team from China to run the U.S. business. They hire some local talent, but try to really make them learn the ways of their Chinese kind of counterparts and expect full allegiance and how they follow the strategies and execute their strategies. Just trying to replicate how things are done um, in China and culturally to the U.S. And, you know, a result is that there's literally a, always a lot of tension between kind of um, the corporate level and then also the overseas the overseas kind of departments or um, businesses. But at the same time, though, like I think this time around, compared to kind of previous rounds of Chinese companies going overseas, they're also under a lot more pressure to succeed and to really prove that there is um, a business case to operate and to and to be in the U.S. Versus, I think before um, a lot of the Chinese tech companies, they they open up R and D centers in the states and really kind of, you know, they they, try, they want to hire U.S.-based talent. And um, when they're launching businesses um, in the U.S., they they want, it's more like a trial and error. Let's, let's see if this sticks. Let's see if it works out. But I think for this crop of kind of newcomers, like new um, companies in the U.S., they, they really, they're really keen on diversifying um, their markets and succeeding Um in in the U.S. and in other um, Western countries, and I think like for at least from my vantage point, I I think there, you know, the, there's the basic things of trying to understand the product market fit, spending time about learning the target audience and pivot strategy when, you know, on the ground learnings and experiences demand so, and I keep on thinking back to the idea of like 不要死磕, um, 这件事情, I think for mm. a lot of Chinese company that's also really important and pivot when they need to. Um, but I think it's much easier said than done. But definitely the temptation to secure or tenaciously like uphold the original plan, I think that, I think resisting it, it's, you know, half the battle. And I think from the communications um, side, it's all about relearning the communication norms and the ways to do it properly, both internally and um, to an external audience, then they're actually very much connected. I think for like for Chinese companies, um, just in the U.S., for them to first understand that the U.S. media way is very, very different from how China does PR. You know, in terms of the relationship building, the nurturing process, it's very different from China's media relations strategy. And I think in the U.S., definitely reporters have a lot more auton- autonomy. And there's, of course, always a chance for negative press that's not a part of the plan. 
But I think like disclosure and compliance are much more closely monitored. And I think the U.S. It's I think this is this is a big one. Is that sometimes you cannot PR your way out of things in the U.S. And that's something I I cannot stress enough. But it's also very very、um, difficult sometimes to set the context on kind of you know. Helping Chinese companies understand that that is the norm and the way that things are done in the U.S.、Um, and the internal communication side is also really important because employer branding really is very very important and affects a company's access to the best and the brightest talent pool. And that's often overlooked. And I think also really really important for Chinese companies that are looking to expand overseas to. Start caring about that, like you know how you are perceived,、um, kind of in the hiring process and in the talent pool will affect really kind of your team and how you how you do in the U.S. So that those are a couple points that come to mind. Yeah, fantastic. You know,、uh, I think years ago that Chinese company is talking about Chuhai. You know,、uh, you can spend their market overseas, and、uh, I believe through the years of you know their ex- they have. Much more experience, and、uh, they can become more adaptive to the scenarios in other countries.、Um, and there are still lots of things to learn.、Um, now let's move on to recommendations.、Uh, we invite every guest of our podcast to recommend something to our listeners. It can be a book, a movie, a TV series, a podcast, or video game, or any other things.、Uh, Ivy, what do you have for us today? Um. One of my favorite things to read, and it's like I feel like it's the best kept secret because it started before、um, the Substack era,、um, and it's called the Marginalian. It was originally named Brain Pickings. It's really kind of like a like book review plus like analysis and just musings and you know thoughts and insights.、Um, Written by this one person, and she's been doing it for more than a decade. And I started following a long, long time ago. It's almost like the kind of things you read to escape for you to like also find book recommendations. So the way that、um, the the blog or the post are, it's the way the writer condenses books into insights and then kind of bring bring other books、um, and insights and then just kind of threads it in like the most perfect way. Um, and the goal of it really is, really is to just kind of inspire you on these all these new ideas that you kind of just had no idea even existed. It's like this quest to search for meaning and to find joy in like the mundane and the profound and the way that Maria kind of threads all these ideas together. It's it's really really hard to explain. You have to read it to fully fully understand. Um, and I, I shared with you, Jiang Jiang. Did you take a look? What did you think of it? I, I think actually it's.、Uh, I would say it's 脑洞很大 It has lots of you know、uh, different thinking patterns in terms of how you view a books or、uh, some certain type of you know write, writings. And、uh, I think that's a great recommendation. And、uh, I like the name Brain Pickings. It's just you know very to the point. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly what I mean. It's really like picking her incredible brain and learn something new, and it's amazing. Yeah, and for our listeners,、uh, I'd also like to recommend an insightful、uh, op-ed by Ivy. 
on Temu, the Chinese e-commerce Jack Nars, Pinduoduo's overseas e-commerce platform. Uh, you can find this piece on my friend and former colleague Zichen Wang's Substack newsletter, Packingology, which is now part of the portfolio of Center for China and Globalization, CCG, uh, a think tank. Uh, in, the, in the article, Ivy analyzed Tamil's Super Bowl strategy, which includes a jingle that sings the lyrics, shop like a billionaire, and Tamil's logic in spending big bucks on conversion and the unintended consequences of Tamil's marketing strategies in the U.S. And uh, thank you once more, Ivy. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to having you back on the show in the future because there's just so much more to talk about tech, e-commerce, chips, and many other things around China and U.S. Yeah, this was really, really fun. Thanks so much for having me, Zhang Zhang. Thank you, Ivy. The Ginger River Radio podcast is a part of the GR Media Outlet. Our show is produced and edited by me, Jiang Jiang, Yu Liaojie from Shanghai International Studies University, and Jia Yuxuan from Beijing Foreign Studies University. For cooperation, investing, or feedback, email me directly at jiangjiang, J-I-A-N-G-J-I-A-N-G, at gingerriver.com, or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We would be delighted if you would recommend our podcast or newsletter to others if you find it helpful. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Take care.